This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. writing, women's and gender studies, the DeFlores Fund for Humor, and the Council of the Arts. And I've been especially touched by the commitment and the expertise of Jean and Sarah, who helped me very much while I've been uh, involved in bringing these people here. And I also want to alert you to a couple of other events that are taking place that are related tomorrow here on campus. And the first one is another appearance by Jean here, who will be speaking at the International Cultural Capital Group at noon. And he's going to start a discussion um, with that group about the cultural capital of nostalgia. And beginning from the example of the recent proliferation of reprintings of classic comic strips. So that's going to be great, and we're very excited to have him. And the second event, and there are flyers, like I said, um, very... Um, sort of amateurish flyers that I just made up um, over there by the, the chalkboard. And the, so the second event from 1.30 to 2, so immediately following the ICC event, is uh, Deanna Tamlin and Hoche Anderson are going to be available for a workshop for aspiring comic artists, illustrators, and graphic novelists. So if you know anyone in that camp, um, I encourage them to come out at 1.30. Now, workshop, I realize it sounds very intense, um, but in fact, you know, we're just basically encouraging students to come. They can either bring their art or they can uh, just come by and say hello and ask questions. It's going to be very casual and informal. Now, I'm very honored to introduce Jeet here, and he's himself going to say more about uh, Deanna and Ho, so I won't say anything about that. But Jeet is uh, a prolific journalist and academic with wide-ranging interests, and I should mention that um, everyone here is from Canada, as and I'm from Canada, so this is a bit of a Canadian really happy about it. Now, my mind is really permanently boggled by the depth of Jeet's knowledge of pretty much anything in the last 100 years of <laughs> political history. It's it's quite astonishing, but comics are probably uh, his main passion, I think that's fair to say. That's right. And his writing and editing projects have touched pretty much every aspect of comics, the art, the theory, the politics, and the industry. Now, his publications on comics are way too many to list, so I'm just going to mention that he does have a comic studies reader coming out very soon from the University Press of Mississippi. And that's all I want to say, so I'm going to pass it over to you guys. Yes, we're ready to go. Um, Okay, so um, the the topic today is... uh, uh, sort of comics and politics, and uh, even though we are Canadian, I hope you don't mind if we occasionally touch on American politics. And in fact, I, I think that uh, what uh, this is a very well-timed talk for us because uh, both Ho and Deanne have done comics that are very relevant. And I'll just mention 
that um, Ho's, uh, uh, one of his well-known works is uh, King, uh, a graphic novel biography of Martin Luther King. And I was just rereading it the other day to prepare for this. And one thing that struck me was that um, Ho really dealt with um, the way that King was a controversial figure in his lifetime, and there were people who were saying that he was a socialist, that he palled around with communists, that he was uh, n- not a real American, uh, and uh, there's a certain like language used against King, which I think we'll all be familiar with. Uh, and Diane is working on a graphic novel to, about which we'll talk a bit more about uh, about Gerald Bull, who is a Canadian um, uh, engineer and. Uh, uh, Artillery expert. Artillery expert, and who had uh, sold um, uh, weapons to Saddam Hussein when Saddam Hussein was an, an ally of the West. And uh, we will talk a bit about that. So in, in both cases, um, uh, Ho and Diane are doing comics that are very um, uh, dealing with issues that are very current and alive. Um, and I want to just maybe sort of start uh, with that. With um, uh, perhaps I'll just talk for like a five or ten minutes about comics and politics, and then uh, I'll uh, reintroduce Ho, and we'll go through his career, uh, and then um, go into uh, Diane's career. And but I, I want to start with the sort of the larger. Uh, issue of uh, comics and cartoons and politics. And um, I, first of all, I, I should say that the comics that we're interested in are narrative comics. They're comics that have captions and tell stories. So they're not necessarily editorial cartoons. And perhaps, uh, and we can, in the question and answer period, talk about editorial cartoons, but uh, both Ho and Diane are very interested in narrative comics, which is the tradition of the comic strip and the comic book and the graphic novel. Uh, and um, while editorial cartooning uh, is a very distinct, uh, distinguished tradition and very political, going back to, in the United States, Benjamin Franklin doing the famous drawing of the snake being cut to Thomas Nast to her block, um, everyone thinks of editorial cartoons as being political. But uh, what I want to emphasize here is that um, comic strips and comic books and graphic novels have also always had a sort of uh, political dimension, and and they continue to have a political dimension. And uh, the use of comics for the purposes of politics is uh, very strong now, and it's been strong for a long time. And uh, we can perhaps just start with an image that uh, Diane uh, found uh, or brought, uh, and which is very interesting. It's the uh, cover of the Globe and Mail, which is uh, uh, Canada's leading sort of upscale newspaper, the our equivalent of the New York Times. And when the financial crisis broke, um, they did it. Uh, on the cover in the, in the form of a comic. Uh, so you have uh, uh, McCain and Bush and uh, Palin and Obama reacting to the uh, stock market. And so um, that's a very uh, simple and uh, interesting example of the way in which comics can be used. And uh, we were just at a comic book store earlier today, and one thing we noticed is that there were... I didn't bring the John McCain comic, but there are comic <laughs> books now for both Barack Obama and John McCain yeah. uh, telling their life story. And uh, Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin. That's right, that's right. So, so, so it's... Uh, um, but um, perhaps... Uh, uh, you can pass that around. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think people will be uh, uh, interested in that. Um, so... Perhaps um, uh, just to 
do a quick run through. Um, the sort of narrative uh, cartooning in North America, cartooning that sort of tells stories, uh, first appeared as a sort of journalistic form uh, at the end of the 19th century with things like The Yellow Kid and then in the early 20th century, Little Nemo. And um, I want to uh, emphasize that these early comics, although they were done as entertainment, always had a sort of political uh, dimension to them as well. And they were used politically by all sides, by uh, uh, both the left and the right, conservatives uh, and radicals alike. And I just want to show an image from Crazy Cat, which is one of the uh, more famous comic strips from the early 20th century. And it was done, uh, interestingly enough, by a cartoonist named George Harriman, who was born in Louisiana of... um, uh, mixed heritage. Uh, on his birth certificate, he was listed as a mulatto, and uh, he had um, uh, African-American blood, but he passed for most of his life as uh, white. But the interesting thing is that in his comics, he often brought sort of racial themes to the fore, and this is a comic strip that Harriman did uh, towards the, uh, uh, I think, in the last two months of his life. He was like, uh, and, uh, uh, I mean, you can't read the narrative, uh, uh, but I'll just tell you what, what happens. It starts with this character the brown character at the top who's a weasel and he's complaining about the fact that because he's brown he can't get insurance and the uh, and the, the other characters talk about this like isn't it silly and then the Ignatz mouse who's a, a character in the strip takes the weasel to a beauty uh, salon and the weasel becomes white and then suddenly the weasel is able to buy insurance and this is done in 1944 and uh, it's you know very interestingly a comment on race and on passing and on the sort of the the um, white uh, skin privilege uh, and it's interesting that Harriman was able to get away with this uh, in a way that like someone working in a different form might not because he was working in comics because this was a sort of a court gesture of an art form uh, he was very widely respected but I mean I still I think that uh, working in the genre of comics gave him a certain amount of um, freedom uh, and uh, Harriman um, um, it was a sort of political liberal, but I want to just emphasize as well that there's like all sorts of comics, and the stuff I'm sort of interested in, in particular, are sort of comic books and comic strips that were very right wing, uh, and um, uh, in particular, I'm doing sort of work with um, Little Orphan Annie, um, and I'll just pass this around. This is a sort of a, a book I held. Uh, <laughs> sorry, maybe it's too heavy to pass around. Uh, anyways, so so uh, uh, I mean, the thing with Annie is. Uh, that the cartoonist who did it, Harold Gray, was very right-wing. Uh, I've seen, he's doing in the 20s and 30s till the 1960s, and I've seen letters of his where he says, you know, he thinks Franklin Roosevelt is a communist and that Harry Truman is a socialist. And in, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the musical Annie or the comic, uh, but in the comic strip Annie in the 20s and 30s, Annie is a poor orphan girl in a sort of Dickensian situation and, but except she's an American orphan, so she wants to work. She loves having work. But unfortunately, there are these evil social workers with names like Mrs. Bleeding Heart who like, have these terrible <laughs> child labor laws that are preventing her from working. Uh, and she's rescued by Daddy Vorbucks, who's the hero of the strip. And uh, Annie is, and Daddy Vorbucks, as you can tell by his name, is an arms dealer. And so, so the allegory of the comic strip is if you're a poor orphan girl, you know, you have to put your faith in capitalism and big business. And uh, I was just, I mean, I've edited this book on Annie, and I was just rereading, I was thinking, like, 
you know, Annie is like, you know, this um, uh, an, an appealing, attractive figure. She's very right-wing. She's very folksy. She's always saying, you betcha. And, gee, Sandy, we have to pay too much taxes, don't we? Uh, Sandy would go, arf, and she attaches herself to, like, an older man who's bald. Uh, and so, <laughs> so, so, so in some ways, uh, Annie is the sort of, like, the prototype for uh, Sarah Palin, except that Annie only has one red dress, which she never changes. Whereas Sarah Palin, as we all know, <laughs> has, has a much wider uh, uh, wardrobe. wardrobe. That's right. Uh, so, that's like the only difference. That's, 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 that's only the only difference. That's right. Uh, so, uh, just flipping ahead, um, this is from a woodcut that a Canadian artist named Lawrence Hyde did in the early 50s. And it's a. Uh, the woodcut novels were done by uh, artists, um, some of whom were conservative, but most of them were coming out of the radical left, out of the culture of the popular front. Uh, people like Rockwell Kant. Uh, and they uh, sort of were attracted to the woodcut form as a way of getting a political message across. And although Ho didn't actually see this work until much later, I do feel that there's a sort of stylistic affinity, which maybe we'll see when we get to Ho's work, because it's done, especially Ho's um, uh, early work, because it's done in a very stark black and white, uh, and, and it's very sort of powerfully poster-esque uh, art. Uh, so, so this is like stuff that was being done in the 30s and 40s till the early 50s, and it shows the use of a sort of graphic uh, narrative language for um, uh, sort of radical left-wing purposes. Um, and I want to flip to... Now, there's also... We're talking about comic strips, which were pure newspapers, and there's also comic books, um, which were a sort of plebeian art form that started in the 1930s of pamphlets that were published on cheap newsprint, uh, and with you know characters that we all know, like Superman and Captain America. And I, I want to emphasize that even in this very sort of uh, pulp fiction form, there was always a kind of politics uh, from different points of view. And the early, especially the early sort of superhero comic books like Superman were really coming out of a New Deal culture. Uh, a lot of the artists were uh, Jewish American second generation or uh, uh, from other ethnic groups. And there was a real sense that in the sort of uh, comic books, they embody the sort of a liberal nationalism. And then you see it in someone like Superman who looks like a flag, is an immigrant from you know, the planet mm -hmm. Krypton and embodies a sort of can-do American spirit, very much of the, you know, the period of the New Deal and uh, the Second World War. Uh, and Black Hawk was originally created in the same time period, and uh, it's been revived many times. It also has a sort of nationalist, uh, or actually internationalist feel, because it was done uh, originally by this cartoonist named Will Eisner, but the idea of the Black Hawks is that these are a group of international soldiers of fortune who are from different countries, the United States, Poland, and France, coming together to fight fascism. Now, this version of Black Hawk was done um, in the 1980s by an artist named Howard Chaikin, who was very much working in the field of superhero um, <laughs> comics. And um, I think the re reason why I wanted to show this image is that Howard Chaikin had a real sort of influence on Ho's early work. And I'll show you a sort of cover of uh, one of uh, Ho's early books. He, he actually, I'm going to quit, uh, let me show this very briefly because Ho told me that he actually doesn't like this cover. But I, I think it's actually quite striking. And, and maybe, uh, and so this is an early page from um, the King uh, graphic novel. Uh, and maybe I'll now go to talk a little bit about Ho's work. Um, uh, so, so 
um, I mean, he did um, various comics before King, but I think King was one of the fir- the first thing that you did that sort of got a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah, and it's a sort of very ambitious uh, graphic novel that you worked on for more than a decade. It, it came out in installments until it was finally gathered together, uh, and it tells the story of um, Doctor King's life. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the interesting things about it is that it doesn't. Um, Uh, It's not a storybook life. It's not a plaster saint life. You deal with the sort of, you know, the harsh edges of American life, the violence that King confronted, and also King as a human being, his sexuality, which I think like someone like Ralph Abernathy dealt with, but a lot of other people have shied away from. Uh, So, so like, maybe uh, I can introduce you now as, uh, 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 you know, King is your first major work. Do you want to talk a a little bit about this? I'd rather hear what you have to say. (laughs) (laughs) I've talked it up. I've talked it up. Not nearly enough for me. Um, okay, well, King, uh, I did this book, um, I guess I started it in the early 90s, around 92, thereabouts. Um, and the idea from the start was kind of an attempt to sort of show, I guess as you just said, sort of show King less as sort of the icon that we're used to seeing and more as kind of a fully rounded human being. Um, so not so much to like sort of revel in, in faults and whatnot, but to, just to try to like, you know, kind of show more of a balanced portrait of who the man was. Um, so I guess what we're seeing here is a situation that happened to him. Uh, I'm terrible with dates. I'm sorry about this, but I think this was like in 58 or something like that. Yeah, that's, that's about right, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the stabbing, right? Yeah, he yeah. got stabbed in a bookstore while he was uh, promoting a book that he that he was writing about um, his struggles in the civil rights movement up until this point. And a woman named Isola Curry, who we see with the glasses up there, sort of came out of nowhere a little bit loopy, and she had a Japanese letter opener and shoved it into his chest. Um, and apparently if it had gone like one inch to the left or to the right, he would have been a goner. So that's so what we're dramatizing right here. Yeah, so um, let's talk, uh, I had mentioned Howard Chaikin as a sort of influence, and I see that especially like in the early part of King. Uh, do, do you want to talk a bit about his work and what you uh, got from it? Because I, th- I think it's worth emphasizing that you had sort of taken the vocabulary of mainstream comic books, comic books that were published by DC and Marvel, but, but you were using it for very different purposes. So talk a bit about Chaikin and what he meant to you and what, what you learned from him. Okay. Well, most cartoonists, when they start out, um, I, I'm assuming this is probably true of a lot of the creative arts, you, want, you start out basically ripping off the people that you love. You have absolutely no original voice of your own, and you spend like the first three or four years just stealing blatantly. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did with Chaikin. And uh, quite proudly, thank you very much. And um, Chaikin was kind of interesting to me because he was sort of an iconoclast in a way. Uh, most people in the comic book field up until that point came from uh, a sort of like 1970s tradition of artists like Neil Adams and the other names that were escaping me. It was this very sort of staid, kind of conservative um, sort of worldview represented in their work. And Chaikin was, Chaikin was like a, you know, he, he came out of nowhere. He was very kind of profane in his work, and which I loved, and very kind of vulgar. And he brought in influences from outside the field that were not traditionally brought in, like a lot of like American illustration from the 40s and the 50s and thereabouts. And, uh, and really kind of like brought a sensibility that had never been really seen or explored to any great extent in American mm-hmm. comics up to that point. Um, and pretty widely derided for it, but, you know, for certain people it really spoke deeply to them and that's what I got from Jacob. Okay, good. And were you looking at um, uh, one artist that influenced both you and uh, Deanne is um, Alex Toth. Deanna. Oh, Deanna. Sorry, Deanna. Sorry, Deanna. Sorry. Um, well, uh, 
What uh, do you want to talk a bit about Toth? And we will. Uh, You're the Toth lady. You're talking about Toth. Right yeah, yeah. Talk. Yeah, talk. Um, so Alex Toth is an artist who um, he worked for a bunch of different companies, basically all of them, Charlton, DC, uh, doing all kinds of styles, uh, westerns, uh, licensed characters to Batman, Black Canary. But what I like about him, he's kind of an artist. Artist. He was really focused on storytelling. So how do you tell this, a story in the best way possible using comics as your medium? Um, and he had a really great flair for using high contrast black and whites in a simplified style. So I can see th this panel right here with the hand mm. it is, looks like total toth to me. I can um, see that. Of just using uh, comics are obviously a visual medium, and he really used that to a great extent. And spotted blacks like this with really simplified styles and shapes that is just really effective. And he passed away last year. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And I think people are now kind of coming back and looking at his stuff, and and seeing what what's so great about him. Yeah. He was also kind of comics angry man. He was like yeah. notoriously cranky and pissed off at pretty much everybody simply for breathing. So That's right, that's right. Well I mean we can talk a little bit about that because I think with someone like Alex uh, Toth, he um uh, was a real artist and he was uh, really experimenting and uh, very innovative in his art but he always sort of felt that the stories he, were do he was doing and he was doing stuff like Zorro mm -hmm. and Black Canary were sort of like beneath him mm -hmm. and so, so, so there's a way in which I think what's interesting about what both of you have done is that you've taken uh, what's really exciting about an artist like Chaikin or Toth and you've like uh, used it for like uh, maybe more appropriate stories or yeah so, so, mm -hmm. so th that's a sort of commonality I, I just want I want to move uh, forward to another uh, scene from uh, uh, a later part of the King um, biography. And um, your uh, art evolves through the telling of the story. And obviously, in this part, you're, you're sort of dealing with colors. So do you want to like, talk a bit about that? Because that's a real part of the, the graphic novel, that you know, you know, colors are more and more introduced as the story progresses, and you're experimenting more with colors. Sure. Um, first of all, I just want to apologize if anybody can actually read that stuff. It's all in German. Uh, I just scanned the pages from a German reprint. I was kind of too lazy to go out and get the files, original files, so don't be put off by the German. Um, yeah, so, okay, what was the question again? The color? It's about the color, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah you, you sort of started to use color more um, right. uh, as the book progressed, and uh, um, going from those, you know, those great stark black and white images towards... Um, uh, making color part of the story. So, so like, okay. how did that happen, and what what was the sort of thought behind that? Well, if I was smart, I would sit here and say that it was actually all like thought out originally, and it was all <laughs> part of my master plan. But the truth is, I just kind of got bored with the black and white. What happened was that this book had taken a long time for me to do. Um, I started off in '92, I think I said, yeah. or '93, something like that. And uh, it just took a lot of effort, and I was making basically no money from this thing. So I put, uh, I had to put it aside just to like make a living. And when I finally came back to it after all these years, uh, it just wasn't exciting to work on it in black and white anymore. So I figured it's better just to have a book that is somewhat flawed and that is suddenly like balloons into color out of nowhere as opposed to having a book that uh, is, un is incomplete, doesn't mm -hmm. exist. Um, so that's, that's basically it. It was just like a matter of like a way yeah. to motivate myself to get the thing done uh -huh. and out of my life. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Yeah. No. <laughs> and no. Um, I want to... Uh, Go to the like uh, sort of uh, scene late in the book, which is this is the assassination scene, yeah. um, and uh, I, uh, perhaps uh, uh, I mean you had sort of mentioned the color was there to sort of interest you, but it does seem like in the book that there is a sort of relationship between black and white and color hmm. in in the sense of the uh, early black and white is in the sort of the darkest days of segregation <laughs> and the, the color is more in the scenes of like political struggle when it's not King versus the white world but King versus uh, King his political struggles within the black community and, and then when you go back to um, the, the assassination you have again it's not black and white but it's sort of like this muddled gray world do you want to talk about the scene? Or? See, this is where you should talk because you've got this like deep reading on this stuff that simply was not there in my brain. Um, <laughs> no, but we're just just talk about the scene because I think it's an interesting scene. Uh, okay, well, this is uh, what we're seeing here: the last moments, like the last few seconds of his life, where he's uh, they're all getting ready. They're sitting. They're at a place called the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, and uh, they're all getting ready to go out for an evening of celebration. Um, and uh, King is sitting on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel. Uh, unbeknownst to him, there's a sniper sitting somewhere across the street in the bushes or who knows where exactly, um, perhaps in a bathroom in another hotel or a rooming house. That was that was the story. Um, and uh, he's got him in his sights, and he, he gets him in the neck. Um, so we're just sort of seeing, like, the last couple of moments of frivolity. We've got a couple of guys wrestling down in the corner there and just kind of shooting the shit and before they go out. Um, as for the gray... Uh, I, I don't tend to like intellectualize my stuff too much. It's probably coming as much of a surprise if you're watching me talk right now. I just uh, like to just get the stuff. Whatever whatever seems to work in the moment is mm -hmm. what I go with. Yeah. It's uh, strictly from the gut. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry. No, no, no. no. <laughs> no need to yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. um, do you want to... Uh, so aside from King, uh, Ho has done a large number of other graphic novels and this is from Screen Queen right? Or, yeah. Or, or, yeah, yeah so uh, well, one of which or this is I, I, is it the sequel or yeah so so one, uh, one of which is this um, comic book uh, horror uh, called Screen Queen uh, part of which has been published but which is going to be a larger graphic novel um, and uh, what's interesting here is the way you've sort of adapted your style to the subject matter and so this is a sort of like a horror subject matter and there's some similarity to the earlier art in the sort of starkness but there's also your uh, uh, doing new things to get the, the feel of horror. Do you want to talk about uh, like uh, this project and uh, what uh, sort of interest? Yeah, sure. What, what drew you to that? Um, you know what? This was uh, gosh. When I, I guess if, if I think about it a lot, it's uh, kind of a, an attempt to sort of distance myself somewhat from the political stuff that mm -hmm. I've done over the years. Um, Politics has always been a great interest for me, but it's not like I decided I was going to be like the political cartoonist of like, my generation. Um, and I just sort of like having done King, I've seemed to have uh, gained that reputation over the years. Mm -hmm. um, but I've always loved, you know, just pure geek stuff like, you know, horror and sci-fi and that kind of stuff. Uh, and this was uh, just kind of an opportunity to sort of uh, get away from from the strict political stuff and, and deal, deal with something that's. Uh, um, a little bit more amorphous than mm -hmm. than what I've been used to doing over the years. Sure. Uh, this is uh, kind of adapting. Uh, I, I guess everybody here knows what a banshee is or a beanside. I think it's another phrase for it. Um, and this is kind of taking that uh, that kind of myth and sort of playing with it for my own ends. Okay. Good. And 
So um, you've also done a lot of commercial work, and I, I think maybe uh, this is something we should uh, talk a bit about, that, you know, um, I think there are very few sort of graphic novelists that can make a living uh, doing that, and mm-hmm. uh, doing just graphic novels. Yeah. And yeah. I think probably count them on one hand. <laughs> that's right, that's right, yeah, yeah. So I think most... Uh, people who do graphic arts also do a lot of commercial work uh, and um, it's part of like a sort of an, an artist's life and uh, yeah, uh, do you want to talk about uh, this uh, hockey image and I should say we also I wanted to throw that in because we're all Canadians <laughs> here and I, I felt we should get the some Canadian content <laughs> We're slowly taking over folks, there's no escaping it um, yeah, this, like Jeet said, uh, it's next to impossible to make a living doing this stuff um, you know, that's just the way it is, I guess. Uh, so most of us have had to rely on doing a lot of commercial work. And this is, uh, this is a stamp image I did for Canada Post. Um, there was something called the... Oh, my God, I've already forgotten what it is. There's like a, 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 hockey, like a men's hockey championship that, that takes place in Canada every year, mm-hmm. every couple of years. And uh, this was a stamp that they asked me to do to kind of commemorate that. Uh, so we just got two like anonymous players, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's also a very powerful image. I mean, it has that. Why? Sort thank of, you, Jeet. <laughs> it has a sort of uh, poster esque feel, and uh, yeah. Uh, so this is another uh, sort of commercial project, and um, it's a, 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 a book cover. Is this the only book cover that you've sort of designed? Not done a few. You've done a few, yeah. So yeah, do you want to talk about that a bit about that? Like, it was this a book you felt uh, any particular affinity for, or you just a job? I got the job, or? my friend, yeah. <laughs> and I was happy to cash the check. Um, yeah, this was uh, actually they're doing a series of books, Penguin, right now, where they're getting a bunch of graphic art or, or graphic novelists, I guess is the politically correct term, yeah. to uh, to design books covers um so they think they've got one for is it lady chatterley's lover oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um uh, chester brown did chester lady brown chatterley's did lover chris ware did voltaire's um mm-hmm. candide yeah and so there's a whole bunch of them oh mm-hmm. so, so this is a penguin this is part series. of those yeah oh. i think another cartoonist named uh dan Klaus, so you mm-hmm. might know from ghost world did uh i think it was frankenstein he did that's right he did frankenstein, frankenstein yeah uh, so yeah, so they contacted me as part of the series, and I was very happy to get the job. Uh-huh. Um, a little bit of a cliche, though. I mean, you get the the King artist, the yeah. new Huey P. Newton. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of imagination there, but that's okay. That's okay. I was happy to do it. Yeah, yeah. Did you um, now? What would be involved with a project like that? Did you read the book, or yeah. uh-huh. and uh, um, did, was the image taken from the book, or was it like your interpretation of? Because I mean, I would imagine you you had more leeway doing this than a lot of book designers would, because yeah. they. They wanted you as the artist, right? Like, so yeah, they gave me a lot of a lot of freedom to do pretty much what you wanted to do. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a combination. This is uh, the image of Huey on the front cover was uh, based on a famous photograph where you see him. In, I think it's in the original cover. I think mm-hmm. I took it from where he's kind of sitting in his in his chair and he's got like a spear and a rifle in his hands. Yeah, there's not an incendiary image. Yeah, and uh, so I took it from that and. Um, Exactly where I got the idea for him, sort of holding a rifle on himself. I'm not sure. Uh-huh. But there it is. Well, suicide. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, but it's, it's a good illustration of the uh, the concept of suicide. Yeah. Um, uh, good. And um, again, uh, maybe harkening back to some of the earlier images we saw, there's that sort of you know very um, a very stark and powerful image and very uh, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, in uh, in your face in in a way yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that shaken influence coming through again yeah yeah mm-hmm. that's that's right um, 
Now, well, actually, to, to just go back to this, so you mentioned the photograph, and I think that's something we should talk about because uh, one thing that you do in both King and maybe some of the other work is use photographs um, and integrate them or add, uh, use photographs um, to inspire some of your drawings. Um, do you want to talk a bit about that? Like, like, sure. Yeah. Um, well, I did that a lot in uh, my King book where I used... Uh, I'm very interested in collage, and I thought that'd be sort of an interesting graphic element to add to the book. But it was also interesting for me to put actual photographs into the book, and I've given this answer a million times, where you, um, because it's in a comic book, I think a lot of times it's easy to sort of like, sort of dissociate it from reality. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I thought that if you actually saw photographs and were able to actually relate those images to the images, to the drawn images in the book, that it would be kind of more of a connection to reality. It would make you sort of realize that this isn't just like, you know, pl- you know a plot in a story. Yeah. These aren't just, uh, you know, characters that I've created and putting through their paces. These are actual people. These are real events with, like, real-life consequences. Um, plus, I just thought it was interesting, sort of an interesting graphic element. Plus, there's also that element of laziness that creeps into many artists, and I've certainly been afflicted with it, where it's kind of easier to just put a photograph <laughs> on the page instead of actually drawing the thing out. Um, so, yeah, those okay. readings can win. Well, yeah, the reason I wanted to bring up photography is that there's a, a certain affinity between sort of comics and other graphic forms, including filmmaking. And uh, especially if you think back to the image that you had of King's um, assassination, yeah. that looks like a sort of movie sad. shot. Like it's, it, it has a, it's very cinematic, yeah. yeah. And a lot of comics uh, are like that. And you've also done sort of storyboarding for film, uh, and this is, uh, of which this is one. Do you want to talk a bit about this uh, is this a storyboard? Or yeah, no? yeah. yeah. Um, well, like a lot of cartoonists, I'm kind of a frustrated filmmaker. Um, it was uh, always easier to uh, pick up a piece of paper. And you know I were talking about this last night. It was always easier to pick up a piece of paper and a pen and just draw the images on the paper than mm-hmm. it is to actually, like, you know, gather all the funds and get the people and the mm-hmm. location and the lighting, the whole crew, the crew, the whole thing. Um, so I kind of uh, sort of took the lane of least resistance over the years. But it's been an obsession for so long that I've decided it's you know finally time to actually make a film of my own. So these are just storyboards for a short film I want to make. Um, I'm, I'm hoping we're going to start shooting this thing in the next few months. Uh, it's a story about a gun salesman. It's, it's kind of weird. It's um, I didn't realize I wrote this story a few years ago, and uh, I, there's a we have a, an organization in Canada called the CBC, mm-hmm. uh, sort of based on the BBC. It's a radio radio uh, network or like NPR. Or like NPR, exactly. Um, and uh, this was supposed to be a, uh, a radio series for the longest time mm-hmm. until uh, we got cutbacks at the CBC, which kind of mm-hmm. shit-canned a bunch of the projects that we were working on. Mm-hmm. This was one of them, unfortunately. So, uh, and I, But in, in talking with, with my editor, uh, story editor over at the CBC, I kind of realized that the story that I was writing was um, based on something horrible that happened uh, uh, to my father's friend, well, to my father's friend's wife, actually, where he, out of nowhere, uh, he was an avid gun collector, and he picked up a gun one day and blew her away, and then himself. Mm. Uh, kind of cast a long shadow in our family. Yeah. And this is a story about a guy who, uh, also based on another f- dude that I know, who uh, who sells guns, um, who sells a gun to this this character lounging around uh, with the at the bottom, mm. this character here, um, sends a gun to him, who then subsequently turns around and puts it in his own face. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess this is me kind of like exercising some demons. Sure. Uh, huh. From my family, or family's friends. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, and do you feel uh, sort of um, the skills that you have as a cartoonist help you in terms of sort of storyboarding or Absolutely. yeah, yeah, and conversely, films have influenced. Well, yeah. There. I mean, there are you know they're obviously both like heavily visual mediums. Uh, mm-hmm. Needless to say, and I think a lot of the skills that you have as a cartoonist are pretty easily transferable to cinema and, and, and vice versa. Yeah. Witness uh, the amount of uh, Hollywood screenwriters who are now writing comic books for Marvel and DC yeah. and, and various others, or the number of uh, comic book artists who become storyboard artists or even Frank Miller who I'm yeah. sure many people know in this room uh, from Sin City who's now you know he's got this spirit movie coming out yeah. uh, that he's written and directed yeah that's right there seems to be an increasing o- uh, overlap and yeah I should mention uh, if, if people here don't follow comics closely uh, there's a lot of Hollywood people I guess Josh Weldon would be the most famous who Josh Whedon yeah. yeah, yeah. what's with you in the yeah, names so, sorry Jane. I'm nervous uh, <laughs> sorry uh, anyways John, uh, but he uh, but the most uh, Hollywood people are coming in and doing uh, com- uh, comics now yeah like the guys who write Lost are doing yeah. comics and yeah. They who have say, also been influenced by comic books. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they so like it because they're not edited as much as they are in TV. Or yeah. TV, you were working with a staff of writers, and the studio says yay or nay, or we don't have the money, we do have the money. And comics, is, budget is not an issue. Mm-hmm. They write the book, and um, mostly what they write comes out on the page, mm-hmm. which I... I guess it's a tremendous freedom for them. That's right, yeah. yeah. And actually, since we have a nice sort of segue, uh, we can uh, turn to uh, Deanna's the Beautiful uh, Deanna Tamlin <laughs> uh, for your brother. That's right. Uh, so I'll uh, just say a, just a few words uh, about uh, Deanna. Um, uh, a graduate of Concordia University uh, with a Bachelor of Fine Arts and a major in animation. And she's done some uh, very interesting uh, comic books, uh, both autobiographical and historical. Uh, the one you see on the screen, uh, Duty Must Be Done, is uh, the story of Frederick Banting, who's actually um, a very well-known figure in Canadian history because he was the sort of co-discoverer of insulin. Uh, and um, uh, in addition to that, uh, Deanna has done a sort of autobiographical work about um, being a, a mother, and uh, and uh, she um, has uh, been nominated for the Ignite Award, which is a major sort of industry award for self-publishing, and uh, has received a Canada Council grant as an emerging writer. She's currently working on um, a graphic novel about uh, Gerald Bull. Um, And so before we go through some of the images, maybe we should, do you want to start with the Bull, or should we go ahead into that? Um, or maybe we, we should start, start, with to, yeah, yeah, start with Banting. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, what drew you uh, to Banting, and and perhaps even before we uh, uh, that, I can also mention that you can see perhaps in the sort of the uh, black and white form that some of the artists that we talked about earlier, like Alex Toth, um, uh, left an influence on you as well. Yeah. Well, you also you can see kind of the it looks like a woodcut, but yeah. uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's pen and ink. Um, there's a, a book that comes out every year, an anthology collection called SPX, that um, complements a, a small press expo that happens in Maryland, which is a bunch of small press uh, independent comic people getting together for a weekend. And uh, the book is distributed in all major stores. And they used to have um, a theme to it every year. So one year the theme was biographical comics. And anyone can submit, and then it's a kind of a juried thing of who gets to get into the book. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do something for this. And because it's an American publication, I thought, I have to do a Canadian, <laughs> because it'll be sure to be the only Canadian in the book. And um, 
I happened to be doing some reading. My my grandfather served in World War II, and he had never spoken about his war experiences in my lifetime. And as he was getting older, he he started talking about it just a little bit. And I thought, you know, now's my chance. I should do some reading about what he experienced so I can ask him some questions while I have the opportunity. Um, And he was in uh, a regiment called Ferry Command. And what that is is... um, a lot of the planes were for the World War II were made here in the States, and they figured the quickest way to get them over to Europe was to fly them over one by one. Because so, they were putting them on boats, but then that was a big, the Germans would blow them up. Um, so Ferry Command uh, had bases in, my grandpa was stationed in Nassau, Bahamas, because they would se- send the uh, airplanes to Africa and also to... Um, to Europe, and they would fly out of Gander, Newfoundland. Um, so I found out that uh, Frederick Banting was his story kind of crossed over with Ferry Command. And as Jeet said, Banting is a pretty well-known person in Canada. He's considered one of the great Canadians. People know he discovered insulin, Banting, and Best, and that's kind of all that people know. But um, in World War II, he was made the chief scientist for Canada to help um, basically win the war. And he had discovered, uh, he had made some important discoveries, and he wanted to get over to Europe the quickest way possible. And basically, people were going over by boat. He said, that's too, that's not fast enough. That time is of the essence, and I need to get there quickly to share my knowledge. Um, so he found out that there's this thing called Ferry Command where they fly people over, but it's a completely military unit. So he said, I need to be on one of those planes to get me over to Europe. And because uh, he was who he was, they made some exceptions, and he, he got on the plane, and then the plane left from Newfoundland promptly iced up, crashed, and he died. Um, which no, n- nobody yeah. knows that. And it's what, like, wow, that's pretty interesting. So anyway, I had been doing this reading about my grandpa at the time, and I thought that there's some aspects of this person who that's really interesting and people should know about. So that's yeah, the reason and then, why I yeah, did that story. Was, uh, I mean, more than a scientist, he's also a painter. And he's a, he's yeah, a very he painted with a group of seven, which nobody knows. And his um, he made the discovery of insulin when he was in his 20s. And it was something that kind of haunted him because... It's considered one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century. And everybody, the whole country looked to him for a follow-up. Like, what are you going to do next? <laughs> and, uh, and he set his sights on cancer. He said, oh, okay, I'm going to do cancer next. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did what he yeah, could. Yeah. And he, didn't, he, he uh, didn't do it. But uh, he felt this real pressure of duty and... Uh, all he wanted to do was paint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. That's uh, um, so. So it's interesting. The sort of, I guess, the fusion of yeah, your uh, uh, personal interest in your grandfather with this sort of larger historical narrative. Yeah. You want to talk a bit, a bit of this image? Yeah. So that kind of brings me to my current project on um, Gerald Bull. Also, uh, also another scientist. So also another scientist. Yeah. So Gerald Bull is considered one of the greatest, um, or the greatest ballistics expert of the 20th century. Um, 
Canadian, born in uh, North Bay, Ontario, in the 20s. And he, uh, he went to University of Toronto to uh, study aerodynamics. And he's actually the youngest ever graduate from mm-hmm. U of T still to this day. He got a PhD uh, when he was 22. Impressive. Yeah. yeah. And there's a family connection here, too, because my granddad was his personal secretary um, for eight years. And I grew up hearing stories about him. Uh, she really respected him. And uh, I started to do some reading about him and thought, wow, his story is really interesting. Canadians tend to think that our history is dull and staid. We <laughs> And uh, I, we don't tend to celebrate um, people and hold them up. And he's got a checkered, a checkered past. Uh, and his story seems to be kind of lost, so I, I thought I'd like to do a story about him. So this is, I've, I've only just started, I've completed all the research, I'm writing it, and I just started drawing it. So the story starts, this is from the prologue, um, this is in World War One. Um, this is called the Paris Gun, and some people refer to it as a Big Bertha. So, at the time, the Germans, uh, towards the end of World War One, the Germans were encroaching onto France, and uh, they wanted to do to use every kind of form of psychological warfare against uh, the Allies that they could. So, this gun was situated 100 kilometers from Paris, still in France, and they had three of them. They were, they were built, it was built on um, Navy equipment, and they altered it. They worked on years for it to make it into a huge gun. So this is the base. They could move it, and what this is is camouflage all around it so that if airplanes went by, you couldn't see where it was situated. Um, and the point of it was just to shoot uh, Paris all day, every day, like 8, 12 hours a day. They had three of these guns. And um, it just meant that bombs were going off everywhere in Paris, and people didn't know what was happening. Mm-hmm. For the first week, they couldn't figure out, because there was no planes going yeah. overhead. They thought it was Zeppelins in the sky that they couldn't see. Um, and it was really frightening, mm-hmm. because... The people who were getting killed were were civilians, yeah. and this was a, uh, something that the Germans had planned for years. Like I said, as a psychological weapon to kind of freak them out, mm-hmm. and, um, and it worked. <laughs> and it worked, yeah. As you can imagine, um, and they always never found the location of them. They mm-hmm. moved the guns around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's a sort of like a gun, which is also... Um, yeah, this is just to show how far away it was from Paris yeah. and how they were shooting into it. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's, it's like a gun, but it's actually a close to almost like a missile. Like it has yeah. both components of being a sort of... And gun. Bull um, was fascinated with this Paris gun, and he, he wrote a large book about it, and his own um, technology was built very much after this gun. Uh-huh, huh. So uh, this is... So that's the man. Um, try to do a quick intro to him. Um, he, he had a dream. His dream was not 
in guns and warfare. His dream was actually to use guns to shoot satellites into space. So he was really inspired by Jules Verne, and he thought that current rocket launchers was not uh, monetarily the best way to get things into space, which it, it isn't. Yeah. Rockets cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so if you had a big gun, you could shoot things into space. So he actually foresaw a world where we'd have space stations and we'd need to get things into space um, fairly quickly and in a way that didn't cost very much. So that was his dream of what he wanted to do. Now his problem was nobody really wanted to fund that. So people did want to fund, to give him money to make guns though. I, I should say that since we're at MIT, uh, I think people will understand this problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in the 1960s, McGill University, there was a, a head of a department there who said, I, I think you've got something here, and I think I can get funding for you. So between McGill, the U.S. government, and the Canadian government, they gave them money to work on something called the Harp Gun, which, um, after the Paris Gun, was the biggest gun ever to be made. And it was... Uh, launching satellites into the sky. So this is actually him in um, the Bahamas, because that's where the HARP gun was. What did HARP stand for? Oh, I can't, high altitude, I can't remember. Put you on the spot. Re research project, I think. Mm. Yeah. So if you mm. actually go to the next sure. one. This oh, is the cool. HARP gun um, launching off. So you can see the scale of it. It's huge. And um, apparently for... And the, uh, economically, it did a lot for... Um, Bahamas. For the Bahamas. They actually had have a stamp of the harp gun um, <laughs> because it was good-paying jobs. They were all training hundreds of people on site to mm -hmm. work on really interesting projects with good technology. Mm. So they were really enthusiastic about it. There was a bit of a safety thing. So before they before they launched the harp gun, they would they would tell everybody on the island when it was going off to say just be careful. <laughs> what happened was everybody was so interested that they got into boats nearby to watch it go off. Um and it became kind of a form of entertainment on the island. <laughs> and uh, also, apparently, it was so loud that every time it went off, uh, chickens would die because they'd have heart attacks. <laughs> they'd run around like crazy. And so one guy's job was to go to all the farmers and reimburse them for their chickens who had died of heart attacks. <laughs> wow, that's a great uh, detail. Should I go forward? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Okay. So this is... Um, well, I guess this is just... Uh, I'm not a big mathematical person, or I don't know a lot about uh, guns myself, but I've been looking a lot and researching it, looking into the technology that that goes into missile launches and propulsions and wind tunnels. And when you start looking at the equations, they're, they're kind of beautiful in a way. So I was starting to do kind of studies of uh, these missiles, and they can kind of abstract to, to look like art. 
Well, yeah, when we were talking earlier, you had mentioned that uh, Matisse is one of your sort of uh, uh, favorite artists, and there's a way in which this equation has, <laughs> looks like sort of like late period Matisse in, in its sort of simplicity. Yeah, and I think it follows that um, Gerald Bull, the man, was actually um, quite a peaceful person. He hated the sight of blood, and it was really ironic that the things that he built, you know, literally killed hundreds of thousands of people. But I think he was so much, he lived so much in his head of equations that it became really abstract. Um, the thing that he was producing was an end product, and what he had in his head was these kinds of images, which you wouldn't yeah. associate with. Well, I, I guess that's a sort of classic Werner von Braun sort of, you know, I don't care. My job is how to get the missile to go up. I don't care where it lands. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, and this is, a, yeah, this is another very sort of beautiful yeah, equation. Yeah, so I did kind of a few of those. <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to go through them? or? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, you have some photographs. Yeah. So this is just um, where how he made his money. Like I said, um, the harp gun was a huge success. Um, the uh, funding got cut, and uh, he wasn't able to follow up on it. So to make money, what he did was he specialized in these. This is a howitzer gun. Um, so what Bull was really good at is he designed guns and shells that fired further than anything ever had gone before and with a huge degree of accuracy. Um, and he did it for cheaper than anybody, too. So the people who were interested in buying these were um, not uh, Canada, the United States, or Europe. It was China, Iran, Iraq, South Africa. Yeah, so it's a poor man's missile delivery system. Yeah. Yeah. And so here we're getting to um, um, his last project that he worked on was called uh, Project Babylon. And ever since the harp gun happened, which was in the 60s, he wanted to, to build his dream, which is a gun, a huge gun that shot satellites into space. And nobody was interested in it. They thought he was kind of a crackpot. And uh, some people did. And NASA was fully entrenched. They had, it, it's a huge business. And they actually didn't want somebody competing with rocket launchers with something that was cheaper. They had no interest in following up on something like that. But somebody in the 80s who did have a lot of money and was interested in prestige projects was Saddam Hussein. Hmm. So Hussein actually... Um, Hussein had been using some of his howitzer guns in the Iran-Iraq war. He knew that they were effective and that Bull did know what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So he said, listen, I need some more of those guns. But um, And Bull pitched him on, on um, his dream, saying, you can have your own satellite system. Nobody else in the Middle East will have it. And Saddam thought that that was a pretty good idea. Mm -hmm. So it was... He considered it kind of a prestige project. He wanted the guns from Bull, but he also thought it would be nice to have a satellite system as well. Um, so Bull was working on uh, Project Babylon for, for Hussein, and uh, he had to do a mini version first, 
that they called Baby Babylon. So this is a this is a picture of Baby Babylon that um, it never got completed because Bull was assassinated in 1990 um, in the middle of Project Babylon. He was going to his apartment in Belgium, and, and somebody shot him twice in the head, three times in the back. So it was a it it was a hit that had been organized uh, professionally. Um, so it never got completed. But after the Gulf War, the UN weapons inspectors came in. So this is one of their photographs <laughs> of uh, Baby Babylon, and it's just to give you an idea of how huge it was. Um, the real Babylon was supposed to be one and a half times the length of a soccer field. So for that, for something that large, they have to have it on the side of a mountain to support it. So that's kind of to, sh to give you an idea of what it might look like. Okay, and... Um, so this is... Uh, Bull died right before the start of the Gulf War. And before the Gulf War, pieces of, Babylon, of the Babylon project were being made basically all, all over um, Britain, Greece, Germany, the U.S. And uh, even though it was a non-military project, Bull thought nobody would believe that. So that's why he had things... Uh, made all over the place. But when the Gulf War was about to start, people were looking more closely into shipping and what looked like military things. And these were parts of the gun that were found in the um, United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. So some of these parts are on display in different museums around the world. Yeah. Now, can I ask you a question about the photographs? Because um, when you're researching your project, uh, you're obviously looking at these things. Are you going to be using them as uh, images in your art, or are you going to as uh, models? Or I'll be using, yeah, some of them for photo reference, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, oh, okay, so I guess so that's, uh, that's the last. Uh, that's the, the last one. So, um I think uh, we've taken up a fair bit of time, uh, but uh, in, uh, in our, at least our hour, and so we've. Um, it might be good to open up the floor to questions that people might have. Uh, yeah, I think the, uh, both uh, Ho and uh, Deanna have talked about a lot of very interesting subjects. So I'd uh, be curious to hear from the audience. Yes. Or not. Yeah. So uh, a two-parter. One, are you guys, are any of you familiar with Kate Beaton? The, she's a Canadian history comic strip writer who publishes on the internet. Might be of interest. Oh, um, I haven't heard of her. No, I haven't. Beaton, okay. B-E-A-T-O-N. Yeah. Can, can you describe her work a little bit? Oh, that'll be the second. Yeah. <laughs> she does, um, she's done a number of uh, small strips of um, figures from uh, United States and Canadian history and a bit all over the world. And they, they tend to be um, about uh, particular episodes, why this person is famous um, or why, you know, a, a legend about someone, but um, just a little strip illustrating them, simple styles make the, the figures look alike. Um, and there's a, a very ahistorical dialogue that they tend to, to um, did you do something about the presidents, like the 
um, his uh, little thing about all forty-three presidents or something like this. It's because I, I think that's. I don't. It's it's possible that I that I yeah. missed it yeah. in the last few weeks. Uh -huh. But uh, I ask because her work's very uh, calm, funny sense, not yeah. just the drawn pictures. And I was curious if um, use of, of politics and history um, as satirical approaches works as well with works, or if there's a reason why, um, uh, if, if that's something that um, you two had considered using or do use or think that's very different from your approach to it. Well, I would say as satire, I, th I think it would be hard to carry off kind of a 200, 200 pages of work as, a, as pure satire. I think it works best in an okay, editorial comic format. Or if you look at something, if you look at comedy like Saturday Night Live, to me it works best when it's five minutes, ten minutes. <laughs> you try to stretch it out and it, it loses something, the immediacy or something to it. Um, yeah, the one example I can maybe think of is uh, Larry Gonick, who does this uh, yeah. uh, history of uh, the universe, uh, where and it's done in a very sort of satirical and comic way. But again, um, it's not a single character; like he's sort of covering everything. So it, it does have sort of the feeling of short bursts. Like here's a few jokes about Rome, here's a few jokes about Egypt. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. But sorry, yeah. got that for you. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, my stuff has been used a few times uh, as kind of a teaching aid. I think um, uh, I think for a lot of people, it's probably this kind of subject matter is a little bit musty for some. Yeah. So I think um, having a bunch of pretty pictures splashed in front of you, I think, is probably uh, makes it a little bit more palatable than just having like dry text on a page. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it just as a supplement though, not as a as a strict aid on its own. And for my um, for my banting one, the Canadian Diabetes Association. Um, uses it kind of as an outreach tool for, for kids, so uh, they've, they've bought you know, several hundred copies of it to give out it's for certain kind of promotions. Nice. And in, uh, in London, Ontario, there's a Banting Museum, that, that's where he discovered insulin, and at the museum they, they stock the comic because they've got kids groups who come and they say it's great for, for kids to have. Yeah. Well, I I didn't uh, it didn't occur to me, but that's the other sort of connection between you and uh, Banting, the personal connection of London. Yes, I'm from I'm from London, Ontario. That's where he made the discovery. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Can you both tell us a little bit about the techniques that you use? Go for it. Okay, um, I'm pretty old school, so pen and ink. I, I draw comic books are traditionally two and a half times the size of a printed size so that it's 11 by 17. Um, I write everything out in full in kind of a script format and a word first and then I break things down in thumbnails like just stick figures to make sure you've got kind of the flow right of the action and then um, just draw in pen and ink and now I, I, I scan it into the um, computer and I put some gray tones in, but I try not to fool around with it too much in Photoshop. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty open to whatever happens to come in front of me. Um, 
I'm pretty old school in my own in my in my in my own way, but I also like to use modern technology. The computer has been an invaluable tool for most cartoonists, um, for and especially with uh, with this particular volume of King, if I may. Um, this was uh, a lot of this. This was all done pretty much on the computer. It was all uh, usually the comic book pages are drawn as a single unit with the you know, per, you know seven or eight panels per page. Whereas this time uh, I did it all as a single images and uh, composited all on the computer. Um, yeah, so actually, I'll just that. flip forward and could, uh, this would be like this sort of page, right? Uh, yeah, 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 pretty yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, a lot of Photoshop. Uh-huh. A lot of Photoshop. Absolutely. Um, I actually, to sort of follow up on the technique question, I guess one problem a lot of cartoonists deal with, especially with longer works, is editing. Like you know, it's kind of it's much more difficult, as I understand, it, to edit a comics page than yeah. to edit. Like if you're a writer, you can edit a paragraph and throw out words, and uh, yeah. yeah. So, so like, do you guys have any sort of technique for like knowing uh, uh, dealing with the problem of editing? Like, uh, uh, just getting it right in the script yeah. Uh, yeah. the first time. Uh, it's not like in a movie where if you decide you want to take out a shot or add a shot, it's like so elastic you can add and, and, and subtract as you at will. Whereas when you deal with a page in comic books, it's a, it's a it's a solid unit that you have to work with. So if you decide you want to get rid of panel three on a, like a six panel page, you pretty much got to get rid of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so it's just best to get it right on the word in the word stage first yeah. before you yeah. move on. So so have a sort of tightly done script. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but not so tight that yeah. you can't uh, improvise if you choose to down the road because there's nothing more boring than sort of knowing exactly what steps you're going to take before yeah. you've even started on the journey. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. yeah. so it's a balance. Got to have balance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Life yeah. is about balance, G. <laughs> either of you um, ever worked in collaboration with other artists, either doing like strictly uh, artwork or writing or a combination of both? Uh, I've done that, a little bit of that. Um, for me, it's... Uh, it's about survival, you know. If you want to do your own thing, you got to be rich, um, which I'm not. So I, I kind of have to take whatever opportunities uh, come my way, and if that's in collaboration, you know, that that's fine. I'd prefer to do my own stuff uh, whenever possible, but it's it's just not always an option. Yeah. For me, um, my first, I've always loved comics, forever, and I knew I wanted to do my own for the first few ones. Um, I had a problem figuring out where to start because it seemed kind of daunting. So I have a friend who's a um, short story writer, and I really like her, her stuff. So my first few comics, I adapted um, a couple of her short stories, which was a helpful kind of exercise for me just in terms of feeling confident and learning the craft of storytelling before I, I started writing my own stuff. But like Ho, I, I prefer to do it myself. Mm. Most cartoonists are kind of like raving ego <laughs> Control <maniacs>. freaks. <laughs> Despite like you know the exposure your work actually gets, you feel that it's uh, the greatest stuff in the world, even if nobody else does. <laughs> well, yeah. actually, although I, sh- I should emphasize that that sort of method of doing it by yourself is not uh, totally pervasive in comics, especially the sort of more mainstream comics are very much done in the sort of division of labor, where the writer, Factory. artist, inker, colorist are all different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, sir, you have. Well, I was going to ask. Um, given your statements about the constraints, like, no, so what you would do if you, there were no constraints, like, what's the dream project that you would just devote all your time to? Uh, I've been trying to do a story called Godhead for about eight years, 
which is a story about, uh, let's see, a corporation creates a machine that allows the user to talk to God. And uh, rather than embracing this technology, the Vatican gets upset with it because their role <laughs> as the middleman between humanity and, and Christ is sort of threatened. So they, 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 can, they can script a group of ex-commandos to destroy this thing. So uh, I've been trying to get to find a publisher for this thing for like eight years. <laughs> it's nothing. So there you go. Um, there's, some, uh, there's a question over here? Or, yeah, yeah. Um, so there was mentioned that it's pretty much impossible to make a living just doing comics. I'm just curious, um, out of your work hours, I guess, um, what percentage of it do you actually do doing comics as opposed to doing like random other advertising? Sure. I should say, if you do, if you work for Marvel or DC, you, you can make a living. Like if you want to draw Wolverine, you can you can make a different a decent living. Um, Great living. Yeah, so I I don't want to do that. Um, so I was only I I quit my full time job February of this year um, to focus more on my artwork. So financially, I was able to do that after working, you know, for fifteen years full time and doing my artwork at night and on weekends. So I, I'd say now I try to do it about fifty fifty. Like fifty percent working on stuff that pays the rent, and fifty percent um, my artwork. But that that has been recent as of like this year. Before I'd say maybe was like ninety ten, like ten percent doing my own stuff. Oh, I guess it's me. Uh, I uh, spend. Um, I guess yeah, it's probably about fifty fifty doing what I want to do and doing stuff to pay the bills, although I've been lucky over the last six or seven months, and then I got a big fat check for some work I did about a year ago, and uh, so I've just kind of been indulging my own muse for the last little while, but that luxury is going to be coming to an end pretty soon, I'm sorry to say. Um, yeah. Please, I beg of you. <laughs> Actually, I have a question for G. You know, I wondered if you would talk a bit more about... Um, in the contemporary context, because you sort of talked about the history bit, but why you think there are so many comics that deal with historical materials? You know, why does this become a focus, particularly for comics who, as you know, like these two, are clearly working outside of the mainstream comics industry and are struggling for that reason? Yeah. In a sense, but why people in this category, in particular, seem to be? Is it the is it industry driven? You know, is it what what's going um, on there? Well, that's. Good sort of question. Like, there's, um, uh, I mean, since the 1980s, um, there has been a sort of proliferation of the sort of graphic novels and alternative comics where people can't make a living, but they can make a little bit closer to making a living. Yeah. Or there's a little bit more <laughs> space, especially in, like you go to bookstores uh, and their graphic novels and their graphic novels are in courses. And it seems like the sort of graphic novels that get the most mainstream exposure are the ones that are non-fiction and have some sort of like educational or serious theme. Uh, I guess most famously Art Spiegelman's Mouse. Mm -hmm. um, Persepolis. Yeah, Persepolis. Uh, uh, and so I, I, whereas I think people who are doing graphic novels that are strictly works of fiction um, uh, have a lower profile. And I, I think that, yeah, I mean, it, it's partially uh, uh, 
maybe um, uh, it is a sort of industry-driven thing in the sense that it's, it seems easier to market a comic book that has some sort of like educational value. You know, you could, or you can give it to your mom or whatever. You know, like like, like it, it seems like um, uh, I, I think it's a, it is a bit of a problem. I think there are people who are doing very good comics that are like you know like not in uh, nonfiction, but they seem to have a harder time of it. And and whole, you do both fiction and nonfiction. And I think King probably has more of a profile than the sort of um, graphic novels that you've done that are like sort of just telling stories. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So um, I think it's, I mean where I work as a journalist part time, and I, I I can definitely say that if you're going uh, to a newspaper editor and you say. I ha- this is a graphic novel with Martin Luther King. That's a lot easier to do an article, to convince them to do an article about them. Here's a graphic novel by Ho Che Anderson. That's a story about you know young blacks living in Toronto. Like mm-hmm. they're gonna say, well, you know, like it, it just seems like the, 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 if it has a a peg or a historical thing, it it, um, uh, it gets more attention. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I yeah, I could throw that to you guys or why that might be so, but it does seem so, no. Yeah, I, I was trying to think about just the topic and uh, thinking about now, because Ho and I also went to see W last night. Mm-hmm. I think we're in a time where peop- people are trying to understand what's happening in the world. And if I speak for myself, one way you try to make sense of things is by looking at the past. So just in terms of novels, like something like Paris 1919 or Nixon in mm-hmm. China, um, people are trying to look at what happened, what went wrong, uh, what should we do, not do, why are we repeating the same mistakes? You know, the best, um, the best way that you can look at future behavior is to look at past behavior. Um, and I think there seems to be like yeah. a real yeah. There's much more of an appetite. A for real it. surge and an appetite for that. If you yeah. look at all the films that are out now, people I think we're really struggling trying to make sense of what's going on, mm-hmm. and to do that, you look to the past. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the Canadian context that you're working with. Like I'm hearing your talk through the lens of the Canadian Film Board's emphasis on animation and documentary as an alternative mode of cultural production and thinking, you know, you're, you're finding comics through a very different lens than most American comics uh, creators thought about, in part by defining yourself outside of DC and Marvel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not American independent artists, but also the nonfiction bent seems to me is part has a larger cultural context in Canada. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's... We're fortunate in Canada. We do have different arts councils, Canada Council, where we're able to get grants for some of these projects from the government. And uh, in talking to some of my American friends this year, they they look at that as like a miracle. Like I can't believe, like can't believe it. And I have to. Well, one of the reasons why I could quit my job is because I got a Canada Council grant, and it's not a huge amount of money, but it's the amount of money that makes a difference in my life. And. Um, it's just as topical. We just had an election in Canada, and the arts were a very, very topical thing this time around because our prime minister said that um, the culture only appeals to the elite, and people don't want to pay for because he was making a lot of cuts to art funding. People don't want to pay for artists to go to galas and wear fancy clothes and hang out. 
So we all know that's what artists do. <laughs> um, but it was a real talking point yeah, in the yeah, election. It was a major election issue. Yeah. It, it was a major issue. Yeah. And the, it's in Quebec in particular, they rejected it really violently. They kind of yeah. said, how dare you? Mm-hmm. French tradition. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's. I mean, that's right. In terms of the cultural funding, the fact that you know, in Canada, um, uh, especially in Quebec, but it spills over the rest of the country, culture sort of survives partially through these uh, institutional framework. Uh, so that's very important. And that actually, I mean, the interesting thing about the election was that the con- the way the conservatives framed it of you know these elitist gala going artists might have worked a little bit in English Canada but totally Not backfired in, in Quebec mm-hmm. where like they, I guess they didn't gain a single seat right? well noticeably he made those comments in English Canada but the next day when he was called upon to make the same speech in Quebec he said absolutely nothing about <laughs> that's, that's right, yeah. at all yeah so um, so yeah that's perhaps part of the context I mean it's also I think perhaps the uh, part of the context is that the Canadian publishers who do comics uh, I mean are in Canada aren't uh, DC and Marvel, but are yeah. something like Drawn and Quarterly, which has more uh, of an alternative bent. And then there are a few other sort of smaller companies as well uh, like that. So I, I think that's also a sort of institutional um, context. And um, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I, I do see both Ho and Deanna as being very Canadian in their approach. And I think part of it is also uh, maybe the sort of... Um, uh, outsider status or looking at things from a different point of view. I mean, Martin Luther King's life is obviously very well known, but I think the way Ho approaches it is perhaps a little bit less sort of self-congratulatory and celebratory than certain American accounts of the story might be. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's uh, part of it. And I think in Canadian literature in general, I mean, the historical novel is a very large Canadian genre. Like, for the last uh, decade or maybe two decades, the novels that tend to win the, the awards in Canada tend to have a sort of historical theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, like uh, Margaret Atwood's Is Grace and, and many other books. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that might, that might be also That's be part of the, uh, mm-hmm. the framework. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yes? Trying to formulate this question for a while, and I'm not sure that I got there yet. But and, and partly it's because we're looking at this very arresting page, very interesting page all this time. But I want to hear from both of you. Um, it, we touched on it with, when the photograph came up, but just the way in which you make decisions about illustrations that touch upon other media for visual representation. You use pen and ink drawing to replicate woodblock effect. Or here, you know, I'm, this stuff on the left-hand side, especially just you know the paintings of um, Gerhard Richter, um, does in paint something that comes out looking like a photograph. I mean, it's really right. kind of remarkable. And this pixelation that's in the, that mm-hmm. I don't know what that results from, but that's part of the question. It's just like how conscious are you about wanting to take the effects from other media when? For partic- at particular moments. And I guess another part of the question is about perspective, because the perspective, whenever anybody thinks of the images associated with King's assassination, we think of a picture of a bunch of people looked at from outside the balcony and yeah. people pointing, right, with where the gunshot comes from. But these are two perspectives we would never think of, right? The, the shooters, and then from behind, in the moments right 
before, and I just, I, I don't know, that's not a very well formulated question. <laughs> it's about the decision-making process in general that goes into exactly what comes out on, on the page, and I know you don't want to over-intellectualize it, but I'm just really curious. Uh, again, I, I wish I could give you a satisfactory <laughs> answer about that. It's, it's simply what occurred to me at the moment. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't give you any better than that. Do you, I mean, do you feel like the typical narrative of MLK was something you hadn't imbibed because you were in Canada, you know, or did you actually consciously, in some sense, want to change the perspective? Or because mm. when I was reading them, it was like I, it had nothing. It was nothing like anything I'd ever thought about. about mm -hmm. MLK, you know, it, every aspect of it was like a person I had never heard of, you know, it was just such, it was made, as we'd say in literary states, completely, it was defamiliarized, mm, right, and therefore interesting again, right. in a way that it wouldn't have been otherwise, um, uh, and how, you know, I guess, I did wonder how that process, or how that came about. Probably from, uh, from not having grown up, um, kind of being blasted with the, the icon of King, you know, throughout my life, um, coming to him kind of cold. Because um, this project was uh, was not something that I chose to do. It was something that was was uh, somebody asked me to do, um, and I was happy to take the job on. But I, I hadn't like grown up with King as a as a as a daily figure in my life. I knew the broad strokes of his life, um, but certainly the minutia was like was all new to me as I was discovering it. And also probably as a Canadian, um, you know, that probably affords me some kind of an outsider perspective that I maybe wouldn't have had I grown up in in the states. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess those two things kind of formed a... But also, I, I'm t and I've said this many times, uh, for me, um, it's uh, approaching a figure like this who's kind of afforded this saintly status, I think is, is not... How can I put it? It's not... I don't find saints particularly compelling figures. Um, what I find interesting is somebody who has faced some kind of adversity and, and, and found some way to triumph against it. Um, and it's like, you know, kind of had to step in those potholes along the road as he's gone. Uh, I don't think it's so interesting to, like, come across a figure who, uh, you know, he was kind of saintly from the start and never really had to face any challenges. Um, so for me, it was always interesting to kind of uh, see the obstacles in his path and to kind of explore those things. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I think one thing that Ho said earlier that I really responded to is he said, um, he wants to. He wanted to portray King as a fully rounded human being, and I think when you're talking about perspective, we're very lucky as comic artists that we can draw upon uh, film, fine arts. We had a long conversation last night about what our influences are, and whether that comes through subconsciously or, or consciously. I think you think about if you're thinking about how do I show this person as a person then that's going to inform perspective, point of view. Like for me, the banting is nowhere like King in terms of um, status in Canada, but he is a, he is a kind of this, this sainted character. And, and I wanted to do the same thing of show, no, you know, he was married and his marriage didn't go very well. He had a drinking problem. He was kind of a cranky guy and he... he uh, his interests lay in things other than science. And then I think you have to, like we're both trying to take this person and, and bring them down to some something you can yeah. 
And not that it's like in an attempt with. to sort of like to knock them off their pedestal, no. but just sort of to understand them more, uh, just kind of relate to them more as actual people. Mm-hmm. But actually, what you guys are saying perhaps could also be tied to the formalist question, because in some ways, what's interesting about comics is that it's a hybrid art form. It's a sort of mixture of words and pictures, and then, but as we've all discussed, it's not just uh, words and pictures, but you're also taking uh, film, sort of cinematic approaches, you're taking photography, and I think that's sort of part of the appeal of comics, uh, that um, uh, and now a lot of cartoonists are taking from video games. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really hybrid art form, and in some ways, that's sort of what's always made comics suspect that uh, there's a sort of you know modernist ideal of purity where people say you know comics aren't a pure art form the way painting or poetry is but that's also what makes comics interesting that you, you're bringing a bunch of different things together mm-hmm. and and uh, you had mentioned you're very interested in collage and I think that sort of explains some of the formalist uh, uh, aspects of your work that uh, people are responding to that it's not sort of static uh, images but you're always trying to um, bring energy from different art fields. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I have a film. I, I studied film in university, so I tend to think of everything in, in my head as composing it. Like I'm the director and I'm composing the shot. So even in, in my head and when I write things down, I go medium shot, close-up shot, long shot, bird's eye point of view. Um, I, I don't know, just kind of think that way in my head. I know there's one more question out there somewhere. I can feel it. Mm-hmm. Or not. Hey, I knew it. I was wondering, um, when did you make that transition from wanting to study film to like, or uh, make film to going towards graphic novels? And like, what do you find that is different about the two media? Um, for me, you, in Canada, you can't get a university degree in comics. <laughs> so uh, the closest thing is animation. So film is, I, my first love is comics and my second love is film. So I, I thought film animation would be the next best thing. And also, you, you know, you should learn the, the formal um, studio art techniques and, and study fine art. Um, but everything that I learned in animation is completely, can be completely transferred to comics. But if I could have gotten a degree, a university degree in comics, I would have. Don't they have those in places? <laughs> Haven't I heard of this before? No. Well, not, not it's, it's not degree. a full university degree, but a degree in uh, the School in Vermont, uh, the uh, Center for College Studies or whatever that James Sturm set up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's, it's, that's, that's not right. a university degree. I think, that, I think that's what like, a master's program or something. Anyways, yeah. Yeah, but there's a lot of similarities. Like, um, where I went to school, all my teachers worked for the National Film Board of Canada and uh, doing their own kind of personal projects. They would do an eight-minute film and take them five to ten years to make. Whoa. So, yeah, because well, they'd be doing cutouts or, you know, it was very time-consuming, uh, paint on glass. Um, and so the kind of people who do that, who work by them, the animators work by themselves, in a room for like eight to ten hours a day <laughs> working on something that uh, for years for a final product and com- cartoonists are very similar <laughs> one thing that uh, this Canadian artist Seth says um, to people who come up to him and ask about being cartoonists he says you better like being by yourself because um, it's very solitary and uh 
I think of animation as being similar. What well, Canadian animation? Because they're yeah. yeah if you're I, not I working in yeah. a studio environment, yeah, yeah. yeah. I imagine in Disney, it's not so solitary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Sure. I'm sorry, this is my last question. No, ask us any questions. I'm really, and I know we're running out of time, but I'm very fascinated by Daryl Gold now. And Me too. Like, obsessed. You know, I can't <laughs> read all about him. Um, and I, I noticed you know, that he wasn't a part of the competition for you know, the top 10 Canadian. No, he wouldn't be. Right, so this is kind of my question. Is there some, if you've noticed anyway, some shame about about Daryl Gold? And that's part yeah. of the um, like because he is a figure that I feel has been hidden from me as a Canadian. Um, I didn't know anything about him. Mm-hmm. And it, it, this is a place where our, our major figures are presented to us constantly. And this kind of overlaps in a sense with what, what Henry was asking about the Canadian context, where there's a lot of emphasis put on Canadian history precisely because it's a place so concerned with constructing its independent identity and its legitimacy as a nation and all these other things. Mm-hmm. But, um, I didn't know about people, so I wonder how, I guess, you or if you've experienced this. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the harp gun is something that a lot of those Canadians, if you're over 55, they know about that as a real point of pride. Um, he, he also worked on the Avro Arrow, which is, again, another huge Canadian project that um, was at the height of kind of science at the time that got axed by the Canadian government. But he was painted as a Dr. Strangelove character um, working for, even though he worked for Saddam while Saddam was an ally, his death is really shrouded. People still don't know who assassinated him. And the list of subjects is the Israeli Mossad, um, Iran, Iraq. His family thinks the CIA assassinated him. Yeah. Now, when was the exact date of the assassination? Did it happen after Hussein invaded Kuwait, or was it no, right before, before? Right before, before the Gulf oh. War. Um, but in my research, I've had to. I, I went and stayed with his family in the summer for a couple of days at their home in um, Quebec, and he had a huge. He had a company called the Space Research Corporation, which, in its heyday in the um, '80s, was one of the biggest space research um, places in the world after um, the U.S. and the Soviets. And he employed 1,200 people in Quebec on, again, high-paying jobs doing um, stuff that that nobody else in the world was doing and really supported a whole community. And he, uh, the Americans actually jailed him. He was put in jail for six months for... Uh, working with South Africa because uh, he was doing so much work for the Pentagon that they realized that he was a Canadian citizen, but they were giving him access to all the secret um, documents. So they had to have a special act of Congress to make him a U.S. citizen, which uh, Barry Goldwater put through in Congress. But because he was an American citizen, then they prosecuted him and put him in jail. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's really the CIA went to him and they said can you help us out of the situation in Angola and South Africa, they need some of your guns, and he goes, okay, I hate those communists too, but then he helps them out, they fought back the communists in, in uh, Angola, 
but then Jimmy Carter came into power and said, we have to make an example of people who are not following the embargo against South Africa, so put that guy in jail. Anyway, um, when I went to visit his family, the community is, is angry at his family, and is still to this day. So, um, and I think because, I mean, it wasn't his fault that he was put in jail and bankrupt. He went bankrupt. He didn't want that to happen. But they lost their jobs, and they think that his family still has a lot of money, which they don't. Um, and all of the Space Research Corporation, which was a huge estate, um, has fallen into disrepair, and it's vandalized. People have come in and literally shot up the buildings. They took out every single piece of equipment they could. And I thought, that amount of disrespect, like to go in there and just start shooting things up, is, uh, I, wasn't, I was taken aback. But um, they're angry at them. And I had to, he worked at um, a branch of the government called Cardi, and I, I phoned them up to see if I could go visit their library. And uh, they gave me the total runaround. And I said, I understand you have a library. I'm working on a project. You know, I, I can get, what do I have to do to go visit? Oh, okay, well, we can probably arrange that. What are you working on? A story about Gerald Bull. Oh. <laughs> well, you have to phone this person in Ottawa. I'll phone that person in Ottawa. Everything's okay until I say his name. Oh. Well, no, we don't think we can do that. So it's, it's really interesting. So he would not be one of the greatest. They wouldn't put him on the TV show for the greatest Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's one thing I appreciate about this project because it's, I think it's important for Canadians to focus on shameful moments in their history. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So few compared to us. What is your attitude? You know what? I was, um, my, my granddad worked for him and I had a huge amount of respect for him. But I was working on this project, I was really um, torn in terms of approaching him in a sympathetic way because I was having a hard time for somebody to totally disassociate themselves with what they're creating. I didn't understand how. How can you not think about that? Um, and I, I, I struggled with it quite a bit, actually. And and, and uh, talking to his family really helped. Um, they he honestly felt that making weapons was that they were weapons of peace, that um, to keep the world safe, you have to have the biggest guns because then nobody's going to attack you. And I thought, okay, I don't ascribe to that point of view, but that's a point of view. It's wide, widely held. <laughs> um, and I think he, even though he held that point of view that I don't personally agree with, I, he can still be a, a good person. But it, it, it's difficult, actually. And if my granddad hadn't had uh, this fierce loyalty, all the people who worked for him had this fierce loyalty to him. You, got, you think... There's got There's something there, and that's got to come across in the work, or else you, you're not going to be sympathetic to the person. Yeah. And you're not being honest to the material as well. Yeah. Do you think it's necessary to be sympathetic to uh, your subject matter, or can you even well, go in with disdain? 
I don't think you have to be, but if I'm going to spend two years of my life on it, I think I need, I personally need to be. Yeah. Okay, um, do we That's have, uh, I'll put out a last call. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, okay, uh, so, yeah. So thank you, thank yeah. you all very much. Yeah. Thank, you. thank you, thanks everybody. Thank you.